Hello, and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In today's episode, we're going to be having a quick chat about IPv6 and taking a look at the current state of IPv6 deployment. Well, hey, everyone, and uh, welcome back. Uh, We're excited. Uh, This is actually our first time at Network Collective talking about IPv6. Uh, somehow, over the course of a year and a half, we have not had a conversation about IPv6, which is our dereliction of responsibility. So I'm excited about the fact that, you know, we're here uh, to talk about it today. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there's lots of people who are out there chatting about it. But really what I want to get uh, from this conversation is where we're at. Um, obviously, IPv6 has been around for a while. Deployment's been, you know, uh, you know, uptick has been happening, but maybe not as quickly as some would like. So it's 2018, we're getting towards the end of 2018. Where are we at? Where are we at on IPv6 deployment now? Can I jump in on that one? Sure. If you asked me, where's the world at IPv6 right now? I'd say pretty confidently, we're looking at about 18 to 20%. Um, The technique we use is maybe a low side measure. So some people might come in and say, no, 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 we're up at 25. I wouldn't say they're wrong, but our confidence is somewhere around 18 to 20% for the world. But the thing is, the world is not flat. And if I look at that number, that actually spreads between somewhere around maybe 60% in India, 60% in Belgium, 40, 45% in America, 35% in Germany, 25% in Japan. So that number is kind of it's lumpy. It just depends how you're connecting to the network. It depends what's going on in your local economy. There is no one story here. And for some people, V6 is like it's, it's a daily fact of life. This is not marginal. It is the core of their network. But the world overall, yeah, it's about one in five. So when you say a percentage like that, what, what are we measuring here? Are we measuring uh, users, addresses in use, traffic? So, so the measure that we do is an eyeball measure. It's just using web blots, the standard mechanism that people use for tracking. But instead of trying to understand what you're buying in Walmart, we're using it to try and understand whether you're using V6 or V4 to connect to the network. So we're doing random samples backed in double-click adverts worldwide. And so George is spying on you. Oh, spying with good intent. I mean, I, you can trust me. I'm, I'm wearing a good shirt. So the... So the general idea here is that we actually do a simultaneous test to see whether you fetch things in four or whether you fetch in six, because there are, as I say, some people whose daily experience is pure six. The four for them is the marginal network. It's the one that goes through the carrier grade NAT. And we are counting eyeballs, number of end users who can do V6. Now, if you ask how much V6 traffic is flowing, that's a different question. That's not one I'm looking at, but I would love to know because it's an interesting question. Right. I mean, I so I mean, we, we know that. Uh, so I mean, I guess let me ask this question. These numbers, as we're looking at them, do we see prevalence in particular types of networks? You mentioned some geographies, right? So you mentioned yeah. specifically, you know, India and Belgium. And, yeah. and there, there are actually some interesting stories lurking inside that. Well, let, let's hear things. it. Yeah, let's hear it. What are some of these interesting stories? IPv6. It's significantly easier if you can do that using central technology to get it everywhere. So if you think about like a cable plan where someone's had to spend maybe $200 per household putting the communications equipment, the CPE actually in the house, some communities like Korea, they deployed IPv4 massively across the whole of their infrastructure. It's not an upgradable unit. So the rates of IPv6 uptake in the Korean domestic broadband market, they are absolutely flatlined. If you look in India, 
this telco called Jio decided to do a massive capital investment program. They were sitting maybe around sixth or seventh in their rankings, and they did a 4G LTE deployment, brand new equipment, V6 out the door, true V6 with 464 Translate, and special offer, free voice calls nationwide on their low, low data plan. And their subscription numbers, they went through the roof. They took like 50% of the market in one shot. Now, these guys have got 80 to 90% V6 penetration, right? So in mobile, if you deploy mobile technology on LTE and you say, I'm going to turn on the V6 carrier option, every handset you have, it goes V6 in one shot. It's amazingly easy to deploy. If you're talking about a historical large customer base, you know, Comcast, you have a large V6 deployment. Their numbers are sitting at about 60 to 70%. They had to sweat blood to do that. They had a major deployment cost making that work for them. So it's, it's kind actually of, even more complex than that. Technology basis. Sorry, Leslie, please go ahead. Well, no, sorry. Um, I, I was going to say it's even more complex than that. And I think of, of Comcast in particular, because you're talking about what an access network has to do in order to be able to... Um, to, to allow customers to use IPv6. But uh, back in the day when we did the World IPv6 Day and the World IPv6 launch, uh, one of the things that was very apparent was you had to enable Comcast and, and other local cable companies had to enable you know a huge percentage of their customer base before they'd get even a minor uptake in V6. Because yeah. even if the CPE was V6 enabled, which is the last point of responsibility for the network, uh, you still had to have customers that either were directly connected with a desktop that yeah. could be V6 or, you know, all the equipment in the, in the household network was V6 aware enough to, to cope. So, um, so mobile is easier in part because, you know, once you, yeah, exactly. Once you've updated the device, you've pretty much updated the entire network to V6. Yeah. Yeah. It's that simple. That's interesting. So is there, you know, is there any logic to the geographies? I mean, like, I guess I'm looking for, for reasoning behind it. I mean, I've heard, and I, I actually just saw something today out there that there's, you know, it's coming back and forth that it was uh, high GDP economies that seem to adopt it quickly, but no, that's no, no, not necessarily no, true. No, and is, is no, there... It's it's not that simple. It, it, we've, we have tried really hard to look at the numbers and say, wow, this is going to be the GA, right? Well, yeah, all of the G8 show on the board as having some V6, but by no means are all of the G8 up there above world's best. Two of them, it's Italy and Russia. They are way, way down in the numbers. You right. go to the G20, half of them, half of them are below grade, and there's no Indonesia. That is a 280 million consumer market with no visible V6. Turkey is not doing it. Now, Turkey, they're a dynamo economy. They're actually doing stuff. So you can't say, oh, yeah, it's the high GDP. It, it's not that simple. It's much more about where are you in your life cycle? Where are you in your life cycle of investment? So America, mature market, there is really not a lot of room for a new entrant to come in, spend a lot of dough, and suddenly steal half the market in tech and technology and V6 there, but India was wide open. They have this huge middle class. China is wide open. And I think there's a, I think there's another factor at play there too, which is corporations don't tend to convert to V6 if their network is already up and running. If yeah. you are running Greenfield, if you're building a new corporation and you're not going to go cloud, even if you are going to go cloud perhaps, and maybe Ed can talk about that, I don't know, but you do have this concept that I'm building something new, I might as well be able to build V6. 
But if I'm Ford Motor Company, and I've been around since, you know, the late early 1900s, my network is in place. I mean, why am I spending money on this, right? Yeah, I think think it's interesting because if you look at the Fortune 500, I think the current published sort of public quad A accessible on a V6 address, uh, eight, eight and a half percent (laughs) out of the Fortune 500. Uh, yeah. So that gives you a good indication. Probably the majority of those, or a good portion of those are in the U.S. from a footprint basis. But there's counterpoints to all of that. And I think that's really interesting is probably what, what George is, is sort of leading to, which is, and, and especially here in the U.S., I spend a lot of time on the California V6 Task Force, North American V6 Task Force. We spend a lot of time talking through this. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that our mobile providers in the U.S. are done, regardless of whether anyone actually knows that or not. <laughs> right? And you look at T-Mobile, T-Mobile's at 94 95% native v6 i mean it's if you run an iphone on the t-mobile network you're doing v6 only you don't even have v4 um so there's there's a lot of things that are interesting going on in the u.s market that people just aren't aware of facebook has very large adoption um so jordan was asking about total traffic 50 percent of, of facebook's traffic today uh, worldwide is ipv6 native coming in that's mainly from the mobile providers from all over and the that's world on their edge, right that's yeah that's on their edge for for how they're doing that well, now, now remember too with facebook that they have their own app so they're you have their own app, yeah. Right? You are actually controlling both ends of the connection. So that makes a huge difference in your level. They could even have their own stack if they wanted to. Right. Well they do actually. So installed they, they actually drive down for their own stack implementation on mobile um that, that they do. That's actually how they generate some of the metrics and how they're able to show the performance to characteristic differences, like the speed advantages they get out of V six versus V four. You think I'm spying on people? Oh yeah, no, no. Well, yeah, we all. <laughs> well, when compared to Facebook, everybody looks like angels. Come on now. <laughs> but the point about T-Mobile and and networks in general is 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 kind of important because if you look at the trends of how we got here to today in the state we're in, for a long time the U.S. was actually falling far behind in terms of interest in V6 and deployment of V6, and then suddenly, boom. Is like they're they're at the forefront, and is that because you know they built the internet and they want they want to be at the forefront of the technology? No, it's because their companies actually the, the network companies actually had a real need, right? Uh, the, the operators were getting large enough that they realized that they, that if they wanted to have business continuity in any kind of sense, they needed yeah. business. So so you know, we, that's we why Comcast did it, and that's why Timo did it. Timo did it was doing unnatural things with v4 until they they actually managed to unnatural things with v6. V- i'm pretty sure we're all doing unnatural things with v4 at this point but yeah i imagine i imagine their problem was you have a doll do you want to point at the doll <laughs> and so so we had a we had a regional network meeting in australia and one of the large providers probably fourth or fifth ranked in home fiber delivery fronted and they said they have bought their last block of ipv4 addresses they paid 25 dollars per individual host IP for a slash 18, $360,000. They do not want to spend money right. buying IP for any four. You know, and they're kind of thinking, why should I spend that money on IPv4 addresses, software, logical numbers, integers, when I could have spent that on capital plant and equipment and have just got V6 and deployed it? It's insane amounts of money to spend. I think this is the real driver, right? As soon as you start feeling pain, people yeah. start adopting it. And that's re- and you know, we talk about IPv6 in the enterprise because that's the space that I'm in most often. And most enterprises still aren't feeling the pain. They're not having to adopt V4 addresses at that same level that other people have. Although it's, it's getting there, right? So we're, we're getting to that point where I think we're about to hit that balance. And I don't know when I say that, I'm not predicting the, you know, the 50% mark because that's a fool's errand as we've learned over the past, I don't know what, 15 years. 
but uh but like the reality is is that you know as as v4 becomes more scarce as isps go to more v6 primary i mean it, enterprises are going to have to make the transition eventually because the pain will show up and what's interesting is is as enterprises move to v6 they're going to drive their providers to provide them with this yeah. connectivity and yeah and that's that's going to make a major change in the wireline carriers and the- well, I'm, I'm going to challenge all of you because i call bull all right go for it, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so jordan let's correct this so there's no pain threshold in v4 for any enterprise because the majority of them aren't large enough to exhaust their rfc 1918 space so the argument for pain threshold for enterprises are things like if you're growing fast enough, merger and acquisition, that's a true structural yeah, problem. Merger. Yeah, merger. Um, and with the acquisition side being like, hey, you have to actually acquire someone. So whether that's acquiring public space, private space, or the yep. cloud space, that's a structural difficulty that all of those shops share uh, if you're growing at any sort of clip. Um, this is true for cloud scale shops. It's true for any traditional enterprise shops. So if you think about it, that challenge is very easy with with v6 because you just allocate them their address prefix assignment that you want them to operate outside of your block you bring them in you say we're never we're never going to mix our v4 at all we're only going to talk to you on v6 you move your services into our data center we v6 enable those that's how you get to us leave your existing v4 in place you can go talk to the public v4 internet across that but anything that's v6 related comes back to the home corporate office we control all of that it's managed resource very easy sort of structural story to work with enterprises to talk to them about this solving the problem of stop wasting capital human power of renumbering networks over and over and over again and getting it wrong over and over and over again and then doing it again because the third and the fourth acquisition happens. So I think that's one structural pain point. I, I, I challenge it only because I have, I, so it's, it's just super rare to run into an enterprise that actually counts lost time as expended resource. I'm, I mean, like, I mean, I'm that just being practical here. Expendable. Yeah. And, and, and so like, yes, I'm sure that they're out there and I'm sure there's people yelling at me right now as I listen to this. Yeah. We absolutely account for that. But, but I mean, like, I work at lots of enterprises, but like, I just, I don't, I'm, I don't see Let's it. not talk about it from, from that aspect. Let's talk about it from uh, how long does it take a finance team to close a merger and acquisition deal? And if you can get it from 24 months, by the time you have to take all your contracts, your data center contracts, everything else that you have to move, if you can slide that scale down to something where it can be completed in six months, you can close that in a fiscal year. That has a strategic advantage on the street for what you're actually doing. So there's sure. actual structural financial advantage for doing it right if you do it that way. So sure. that's, that's one thing. The other thing to think about is now with the proliferation of IoT and just pure IoT and built, most of those are built in silos today. And I believe that you're going to start seeing more and more use cases where things break out of the silo and you're going to require very large structured uh, configurations to support IoT platforms. Real natural fit for V6, especially for any of them that actually choose a product that deploys on top of six low pan or something like that. If you don't know V6, right. you're just going to be structurally behind. The other one is edge. So as we start dealing with edge with the cellular providers, so what they're doing. So if you're familiar with the deal that Vapor.io did with Crown Castle for you know 80,000 cellular towers here in the U.S., they're putting edge compute in every single cellular data center or data tower here in the US with the plan on making that a provisioned edge compute platform. There's no way to address them, that many resources to make them publicly available and just keep it on our RFC 1918 block space and say like, here's a resource that you can tie into whatever public cloud you want to utilize, you know, whether it's Kubernetes containers or anything else. And then that leads into the last one, which is the, the, the transformation, the DevOps transformation we're going through with containers. How do you scale up a t- container infrastructure and manage it with something like Kubernetes? Microservices, yes. And, uh, <laughs> Kubernetes is V4 only. <laughs> yes. 
And so, and so the discussion that I've been having recently with many of the folks that are actually in the, in the development cycle around that is, we should just pick a single protocol and it should just be V6 and we should do V4 at the edge for any of the service deliveries because that's what structurally makes sense from a scaling standpoint. Yeah, having played in the Kubernetes space, it really irritates me how much work you have to do with this intermediary software to glue the pieces inside the bubble together and mm -hmm. then present them through the porthole. And it feels like, a, why did you do it this way? Why didn't you think about this in a V6 natural form if you had that boundary? They missed an opportunity. Well, yeah. and I think a large part of that is is because at the time, at the time of development, V6 was still, you know, um, somewhere on the in the future, right? I mean, so yeah. three years ago, deployment wasn't quite as solid as it is now, um, and, and I think that answers your quite your why question. But I think the point, you know, all events points are are quite strong and and sort of point generally in the direction of at some point you're going to be asking yourself why are you still supporting V4 when you have to do V6 for so many of these. Yeah. And so why are you doing a dual yeah. environment? Right. Well, I mean, I guess this is my problem is you just said you have to do V6. And the problem is, is that none of the environments I'm in are feeling that way today. I'm not saying it's coming, but they're, they're not feeling that way. They don't feel that they have to. They so feel, here's, right. they feel that it's coming, but it's still a future thing. Well, here's the, and here's the last one. And I, I think the last one is, is a, turned into a more and more compelling factor for more of this. The startups and, and enterprise shops that I deal with, I'm, I'm in Silicon Valley, everyone. Hi, in California. <laughs> so that's why I'm based out of. So I live in a myopic bubble, as Russ says. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> we have a What's hurricane up? coming up the coast today, or coming towards the coast today. And somebody in San Jose said, we have beautiful weather. Why aren't you in San Jose? I said, yeah, you have beautiful weather. And what else? You're <laughs> <laughs> talking to someone who's born and raised down the street there, buddy. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think here's the final. Because all your, any enterprise, who are your customers? Well, your customers are probably your partners, your actual customers, and then your employees. Just define them generically that way. All your employees are running around on mobile handsets that are on V6. Mm -hmm. So you've got, you're going to deploy some, of, some sort of mobile device management, security controls, things like that. You're probably pro provisioning VPN services for them. They're probably at home on Comcast. And they're, they're naturally getting V6 probably from Xfinity Wi-Fi and everything else that they're utilizing. Well, if you think about it, you don't really have the same controls that you had in the past because you don't have a V6 presence. So if you don't do smart things like, oh, well, we should probably dual stack our VPN endpoint servers so that we can actually take VPN services from V6 or V4. So that nice full, you know, I want a full tunnel for my V4 traffic to inspect everything that's coming back. Oh, your vendor supply chain just went down by half as well because not all of them can do that dual stack. Right. right. But let's let's talk practically here. What happens to the end client? Well, the end client looks and says, well, I've got native V6. I can talk native V6 to Facebook, to Office 365, to G Suite, to YouTube. To face, you know, every, Netflix, every every service that I want to use, yeah. all the major services, and you've got this nice little full tunnel VPN encapsulation that's V4 only, and the only traffic that's making okay. it back to you never matches for any of the V6 traffic that's actually going outbound. You don't get a visibility of anything your actual end clients doing, even though quote unquote you have to meet corporate controls, finance teams, whatever else they need to do. Yeah, zero of that traffic are you seeing? Off to the internet it goes, <laughs> native on the mobile app or on that. Xfinity right. connection that they've got at home. So you say like, great, I want everyone to be in the office. You say, fantastic. Most enterprises today are developing mobile apps, especially for iPhones, right? 
super popular platform here in the US, you want to develop for it. Guess what? It requires V6. It has to be able to operate on V6 natively in order to even make it in the Apple store. I just had a customer that we worked with. They spent a ton of money getting a nice, awesome suite built out in San Francisco for all their developers to collaborate around, do all this great work, develop their apps, have to, you know, cross the table from each other, all these special spaces, spent an insane amount of money in real estate in San Francisco is not cheap. And then they tried to figure out how to test their app had no V6 services. Their corporate team told them they couldn't provide them V6 services. And they said, we can't get it from the ISP and we wouldn't deploy it for you anyway. Great answer, by the way. Um, not. And, <laughs> and, and they took 50% of the developers and sent them home because they had Comcast connections so they could go test their mobile stuff for six months. Ouch. And, and it was a complete waste of their space. All the investment that they made, the culture investment they made to try and have everyone collaborate together. All complete waste because they had to ship their guys home because their team couldn't deploy V6 to allow them to test their app for something they're developing because they know every single person has V6 on the endpoint. There you go. It's that simple. Cloud services are going the same way. You awesome. talk about Amazon. And, 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 and yeah, and Jordan, I think that that actually comes back to the point that I was making earlier. It's that it's not that um, the enterprises necessarily feel the need to deploy IPv6 everywhere in their network at this point, but V6 is impacting their networks and they will have to start to deal with v6 and it, and it's so it's creeping in yeah i, I agree with that and yeah. I, I think we'll see the big shift and ed that point was fantastic about vpn because like i, I that's one of those things I don't think anyone's really thinking about. So when you talk about the enterprise, I don't think I don't think a lot of people are thinking about that. And that is a, with as more devices become V6 primary, right? Because I mean, like just about every laptop or every operating system today, your phone, whatever, it's going to actually prefer V6 over V4, um, mainly because they all know that that's where things are headed, right? So we're just we're gonna we're gonna prefer that path first. Right. Not having a VPN tunnel in. If you're working at enterprise today, you need to consider that. And like that, that's a legitimate a legitimate yeah, case there. A classic case of not understanding your attack surface on your network. No. <laughs> yeah, you could do the security spin on it. I wasn't doing that, but yeah. <laughs> it really it is. It really is a classic case of not understanding the entire um, attack surface at the edge of your network altogether. I mean, you just don't know it's there. I, I like to take an optimistic view of the potential in future as well. And there are things you can You're do with ubiquitous. I'm on the what? What? Wrong side of the world. If you're listening, George is now upside down. <laughs> so, so taking an optimistic view, I think there are opportunities in ubiquitous addresses that are going to be very interesting for services, for all kinds of things. I've heard people talking about um, uh, binge watching, for instance, you send the first episode of Doctor Who, you use the central address, you see them watching the second episode of Doctor Who, you preload all six episodes of that season down onto a local node, and you give them a common prefix set and you do edge routing. And suddenly all that traffic flow management about how do I get the next episode, it's in the address. It's not that you should use addresses permanently in this way, but there are amazing tricks you can oh, there do are that simplifies that. routing and switching. Yeah. And you know, kind of, I freak out in address management thinking, my God, we didn't plan for this when we designed the number scheme. But these are good ideas, oh, right? Like, People yeah, are thinking. This is a really good one, right? How many addresses are assigned to a single host? Generally, we give them what? A slash 64. 56. Yeah, 56, 64, <laughs> but whatever it is, right? So even if it's 64, you could actually have a slash 64 of addresses that you're using to represent your host and you still look like the same location on the network. Yeah. So now you can do traffic engineering 
Yeah. You do all sorts of really cool stuff by advertising yourself as a slash 64 different addresses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think the important, the important thing there is, is that it's, it's to dissociate the notion of the physical host and the address, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it could, it could be, you know, software agents on your, on your host. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I cover some of the math, so let's, let's talk really quickly about that. I mean, microservices and containers are a big, are a big thing, right? Yep. And, and I, I like to pick ridiculously large numbers to make people sort of sit back in, in their chair and say like, let's, let's think about it more. Let's say we do 10 million containers a second with V6 and you sign a standard slash 64 prefix, right? How long would it actually take you to burn through your slash 64 prefix doing 10 million containers a second, never reusing an, an address? That's an interesting question, right? It's like, it's going to take you about 58,000 years. 58,000 and just shy of 500 years. How many people actually think their data center is going to be around in a thousand years? You know, I mean, it's how many people think their data center is going to be around in a hundred years. So 58,000 years to burn through a slash 64 at 10 million addresses a second pretty much shows you that, you know, you've got an infinite resource. So why we're, you know, I always find it interesting to talk to folks that are V4 bound that worry about hosts all the time. They worry about how many hosts operate in network. And anyone who does V6, you just don't think about that anymore. You only think so, about network. So the V4 default free zone in BGP, it's approximately 800,000 prefixes. So functionally, we're talking about a million, a million things in right. content addressable memory to make BGP work. You map that into a V6 state because we give people much more integral space. It's actually only 20 to 30,000 prefixes. It's like the BGP state of 1998. Now, who doesn't want a simpler network to run? I, mean, I think it's a good idea. It's probably a more stable network. There are pathing differences right now between V4 and V6 that are really ugly, but the potential for a logistically simpler network, that's pretty good. I, I'm attracted. Time machine. <laughs> Here's, you know, here's the problem with that. That assumes everyone plays nicely together, which is the reason why BGP is a dumpster fire right now is because not everyone plays nicely together. And I say that not being a proponent of replacing BGP. I'm saying just in general. This, this is the reason why we can't, be, get, can't get BGP security working is because the fact that everyone has to play together. I'm going to disaggregate my 32 down to you, down to individual 64s, buddy. You wait till the prefix list. Well, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying with, with the way that we see people doing traffic engineering today and the way things are like a lot of things would have to change for that reality to become yeah. And so I agree with you. In theory, man, I mean, utopia is beautiful, but I don't know that we're headed there just yet. Well, I, I don't. I don't. I don't really solve all those problems. So Jordan, it wouldn't matter if it looked identical to before today. We would no. still be able to handle infinitely larger addressable block space. We'd be able to. We'd be able to, in aggregate, have much more networks. Not worrying about the hosts. Only worrying about how many networks we operate. You could basically think of the total number of hosts that we operate in V4 today would be the total number of networks we could operate in V6. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that the number of hosts changes the BGP table state. What I'm saying right. is that as we add additional BGP segments uh, with, with the routing tricks, the, the problem we have today becomes an exponential problem. Right. And so when I say that, the number of routes in the table could increase dramatically, not decrease, depending on what people are doing. Well, with and, in, and in odd places. 
Yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I have my block of whatever, pick your allocation. I don't care what it is, but I want a traffic engineer. So I'm going to send a longer route this way so that it goes this way. And I want to make sure this goes this way. The longer route goes this way. Well, there's only, mm-hmm. there, there's a limited scope of what we can do with V4. V6 takes that and increases it exponentially. All the things we say are good things. Well, now we just have increased the potential for people to do wonky things with their address space. Right. I'm not saying they should. I'm not saying that's the direction we should be going. I am saying that you're assuming that we can aggregate addresses at an ISP cleanly with V6 and that it will stay clean forever. So problem, I would say that's not likely going to happen. No, the problem with BGP is, is it's a tragedy of the commons. It really is. The global, the DFZ is a tragedy of the commons. It does not hurt me. It gives me finance. There's financial incentive for me to traffic engineer by advertising longer prefixes. Flat out fact. It cost me nothing to advertise longer prefixes. It cost everybody else for me to do it. So, you know, in the old British tragedy of the commons situation, it doesn't cost me anything to put my sheep out on the commons and let them eat the grass. It cost everybody else. Right. And so I'm getting financial gain and nobody else is, is they're just paying my cost. It's yeah. wonderful for me. And so well, but it also gives me sheep to shoot at. And that's what that <laughs> well, I mean, the internet would get way more fun if that became the policy. Come on now. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the small group at the ITF to do it, that, that meets occasionally and is talking about IPv6 measurement. Has there anything else come out of that than what we've discussed so far that's interesting? I'm just curious because I've only been to one of these meetings and they're Right. Secret and nobody knows about them. So you're not supposed. You're not. If you're listening to this podcast, forget what I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it needs to be a secret. So let's tell the thousands of people listening. Yeah. <laughs> they have been small. I, I I anticipate they won't be small for much longer. This is great. Um, and the short answer is, um, let me think about it. Um, so, <laughs> Leslie, so, Leslie so will give you an answer a couple of weeks from now. It's good, guys. So one thing, one thing I would, I would do is I would point out that that particular, the particular group of people that you're referencing um, are, it started out as a group of people who actually came together to talk about measuring V6 for the purposes of the World IPv6 Day and World IPv6 launch, right? Um, and, and carry on the work because the initial work in, that you see on the World IPv6 launch website um, was the, the data that, that the Internet Society actually provides there is aggregate data from, it was from three of the main content providers that were participated in those events. And then over time, it was like, okay, are these three providers going to continue playing? Should other people come and play? And by the way, how do we measure this stuff anyway? How do we measure? I mean, the World IBV 6 Day problem was Google knew and Facebook knew and Yahoo knew that if they turned on IPv6 on their front doors, they would lose some percentage of their V4-only customers because they were behind poorly constructed, you know, uh, V6 environments or, you know, we're, we're talking to, to, you know, V6 gateways that didn't work or whatever, but they didn't know how many, for instance. Um, and that, not knowing how many customers were going to get lost was kind of off-putting to the, to the product people at Google, Facebook, and Yahoo for some curious reason. So the whole point of the World IPv6 Day was to, to get a firmer sense of what that number was and how do you measure that. I have to, I have to, I have to show, make sure that everyone can see, right? Yeah, yeah, I saw that lovely, lovely t-shirt. So so, so another interesting question is, um, internally, I know that hyperscalers have been working to deploy V6 on their internal fabrics 
And I know a lot of the problem there is what George was talking about before with Kubernetes and a lot of the applications not supporting it. So let's say that all the enterprises go out tomorrow and say, we're going to deploy V6, we're done. For whatever reason, you know, they see the light, a miracle occurs, whatever the case might be, boom, they all say they're going to do it. How long would it really take because applications don't support it yet? And what's the percentage of those? If the application stack is TLS, runs with Let's Encrypt, and is web-mediated services, they have no problem because all of the yeah. majors in cloud services will present a front door service into that cloud environment that is dual stack right now. Google Cloud Compute's the one that I use. I'm really happy with it. I know that AWS is in the space, Azure is in the space. So for the majors, if you're looking at cloudy solutions that present over HTTP protocol and TLS, you're done. You're done. Right. The internal state of the cloud engine, that really worries me that it's still a V4 dependency. I don't like that. But as far as the external view of the cloud present to you, the customer, it's pretty good. But it's not good enough. And I'd be pushing a hell of a lot harder. And I actually do think enterprises should be going to their data center fabric, their, their cloud service fabric, and saying, I don't just want the front door entries to be six. I want to know your infrastructure is solid on six. I want this bedded in six. So does anybody they could any do it. Yeah, does anybody have any sense of what percentage of the of the hyperscale fabrics would be six? I don't know. Uh, you're talking, are, so what do you consider on the hyperscale side? I mean, it's, uh, you know, there, well, there's or, structural, there's, so there's LinkedIn, Google, Facebook. Well, I know Oracle's, Oracle's been working on V6 for a long time. Right, but I'm just saying, I mean, what percent, does anybody have any sense of like, what that is, what, what, what percentage of that infrastructure so is. They're all a different, different things. So here's some interesting stats, like uh, Microsoft has V6 supported and enabled in the VNet configurations, but if you want to do Express Route, Express Route will be supporting V6 here shortly. It's not, it's not out today. That's public knowledge. Um, there's things like, um, you know, V6 only. Does support V6 natively or is it over the top? Um, so, so uh, once I mean, again, I don't know. I'm asking. I have no. Yeah, idea. yeah, no. It's it's that's a it depends uh, depends on where maturity. I think, I think that's I think that's true of every hyperscaler. I mean, I know right. people at most hyperscalers and most of the fabrics that I know of. It depends. Right, and and that's one of those things of uh, there's dependencies on the older version of the fabric and where they are and their uplift within it. So, as, and as you're super familiar with, I mean, Russ, you're working on some of the Sonic stuff, and you're pretty close and familiar with what's going on there with David. They're going to be at different support levels depending on where they're at and what hardware platforms they have and what multicast capabilities they've got within their internal fabrics to support some of the stuff for V6. And plus, it's, it's some of them for the older configurations that you know it's just a matter of. And I think it's, this is probably Jordan's point as well. In some cases, right? I mean, well, there's 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 memory problems. There's right, memory problems. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 probably the biggest structural problem. And I think that's going to be the biggest structural problem for enterprises. That's why I say I think it's going to be years for them to be able to adopt and support it, even if their app supported it right away. On the infrastructure side, understanding how to run a dual protocol network uh, is not as easy as <laughs> everyone seems to think. And there's there's some core fundamental problems that uh, that. Uh, we as network operators don't necessarily think about uh, if you're if you're in the network background, and that's what mine is, uh, and, and, and I, I assume the rest of us are pretty much too. But if you're on the system side and you're trying to do zero touch provisioning uh, for systems to stand them up, uh, V6 support is incredibly poor in that particular area. In fact, most people have to write their own custom zero touch provisioning stacks in order to be able to do something interesting. And I know for a fact LinkedIn is doing this. I know for a fact there's a handful of other shops that are that are trying to solve this particular problem. Not all of that is open source community based. Not all of it is out there in, in the wild for everyone to be able to use. 
And so that causes structural problems when you're trying to, you know, stand up data centers in the way that we want to in, in the future. Um, that, that's, that's a gap. The good news is, is it's, it's not really a, a core fundamental protocol problem. It's really just a, the firmware folks at boot level just never thought about taking care of this V6 and saying, should we test a V6 only configuration? Is that something that's really important? Oh, we can still boot with V4 even if we can provide the service on V6. So we have to have this legacy V4 hanging around. Doesn't help shops that are trying to do V6 only from a data center perspective because they got a greenfield opportunity and they only want to deploy one protocol. I'd, I'd want to give a shout out here to the people in Sunset V4 and people mm -hmm. like Lee Howard who are trying really hard to get that yes. conversation started. And they get a lot of pushback, which is, what do you mean? V4 is going to be around for years. Well, duh, but we should start thinking about the transition away now. We should right, be grounded now. It's going to be around for years. That's the question. <laughs> I mean, you well, can well there's, so there's, there's two dates, right? There's the date that it stops being globally routed, and then there's the date that it disappears from the face of the earth, which is, you know, decades or centuries afterwards, you know, down to the moment of the last Windows XP box actually croaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, and let's talk about it from a, from a practical basis. We're going through the weird transition where before we always talked about doing V6s and overlay on top of V4. Now we're starting to think, hey, you know what? We've got this dual stack thing to V6 only and do V4 as a service, right? V4 overlay and push V4 out to the edge. It allows us to preserve some addressing. And this is really what the mobile operators did. 646X lot is exactly that. It's saying, hey, we just don't want to deal with anything in the core set except for V6. And then we'll push all the V4 functional services all the way to the edge. We got the mobile device manufacturer to do that. So Android has 646X lot. And for T-Mobile's case with the iPhone, it's V6 only. And then they pushed NAT64, DNS64 to their edge and said, that's it. That's how you get to V4 services. And, uh, you know, Stefan talks about this. Cameron talks about this and publicly. We've had him on the, you know, for the North American event. There's YouTube videos available. Um, it's hosted at LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, it's those are well-known principal sets of architectures to do, but those are monolithic networks to a great degree. The hard part for enterprises is, you know, those those key sets of transition services aren't necessarily in every single one of the stack. They're not in your printer. You're not going to get a 646 right. stack in your printer. You're not going to get that in your, you know, little camera device. You're not going to, you know, for, for video stuff. You, you may not, you may or may not have it. It's definitely in your operating system, but it's probably not turned in for Wi-Fi and for wired port. It's only there for, hey, we've got, you know, some sort of cellular service, mobile cellular service, we'll turn it on there because it's that network requires that particular functionality. So it's technically built into Windows, but it's not actually turned on for Wi-Fi or for wired. Interesting sort of corner cases that that exist. And how do you solve for that? Well, I guess Microsoft has to decide that that's important to turn on for the rest of the operating systems because they want the transition. Same thing for Android and Linux. So is there some sense in which it's difficult for an enterprise as well and, and easier for a provider because questions like, do we use Slack or DHCP, V6? It's actually easier for a provider than it is for an enterprise, in my opinion. I mean, when I work with enterprises, they have specific security things that if I'm a mobile provider, I don't care. You know, those aren't my issues. So it feels like sometimes when I talk to enterprise folk that there's this sense that it's actually easier for a provider. It's a monolithic network. It's true. It's true. If you, if you operate in an environment where you want to have a direct map on line print paper on the wall that ties MAC address to endpoint address. Oh. 
Cisco's stack. You want managed systems like DHCP v6. But if you think about what happens in a carrier, you're not doing that. You're doing a different form of address assignment because the IMEI is the fundamental unit. You don't care about the random mapping to an IP address, anything like as much. The bills don't reflect that. So yeah, it's easier for a carrier because they can do Slack or ubiquitous equivalents or prefix distribution for the people who want prefixes. But in an enterprise, if you want to have the printout you can thumb through to say which MAC address on which port was which IP, you want a fully managed stack. Unfortunately, Android won't play. So there is a problem there. I, I think it's fair to say it's different and that the challenges are different. I'm not sure it's fair to say that one is easier than the other necessarily because the upside in enterprise environment doesn't have that pesky CPE problem that you were talking about earlier, George. They do no, that is true. It is swings and roundabouts and they have yeah. different problems. It's not they have more problems. They're right. different. And there are people who are advocating for getting away from this idea that you needed that static mapping. They're saying you could simplify your NMS if you didn't care about about the ephemeral addresses that people used. And that is actually where things in digital identifiers are emerging. People are saying, let's do what is in locator ID split. Let's actually think about the identity discreetly different from how the packets are flowing. And you know, these are good ideas, but it's a hard sell. I think this leads back to my point about pain. And, and I'm, I'm gonna bring this back because Ed argued with me and I don't, I'm not convinced. Here's the thing, there's, a, there's an economic motivator for providers to go to, their, to go to their vendors and say, you need to do this or I move. We don't see that in the enterprise, which is why we're seeing it take so long there for them to get applications and systems and whatever to support the stuff they need to because vendors ultimately give us what we ask for. And, and if, we, if, we, if, if the enterprise was demanding V6, we would have V6 support at least I wouldn't say ubiquitously, but it will be far more supported. Yet in provider gear, we see it almost ubiquitous because provider gear, if you want to play in that space, you have to provide it. Well, it's, it's, not, it's just an absolute requirement because there's an economic driver. The pain has been there. The, the providers say, you know what? I need to operate this way because there's no way I can go into the future without it. Enterprises are not making those demands, at least not yet. And so the vendors are not. Oh. So I, not to disagree with your main point, but I would like to underscore that it hasn't always been a case like that for, for um, access providers. Um, there was a long period of, you know, the whole provide the tick box, yes, we support IPv6 in our hardware, when in fact it just means that, you know, it doesn't fall over if you send it a v6 packet, not that it does anything useful with it. And, and in fact, there was a long history of, you know, you know, the standard line, right? Where vendors will tell each provider that, oh no, you're the only, you're the only network that has asked for that feature. We couldn't possibly do it just for you. So that, all of that is sort of a, a, a pitch, if you will, for collaboration, right? So, to the extent that different, different enterprise networkers, networks can get together and talk about what are your problems? Are they like my problems? Cause this I mean, enterprise networks, that's not your core business, right? You can talk to other people about it and get some, some notion of what's, what's reality and what's not so that, you know, networks getting together and collectively telling their their vendor that, you know, we really do need this feature and it's not optional anymore would be would be a way to see some progress. There's two things to remember. Their vendor is not just the hardware networking vendor. Their vendor is also the application developer that they're buying their applications from. And we often right, but on the enterprise side. And the for, other for sure, but but I do also want to say something about applications that I didn't really want to get to before. Is that it's when you actually step out of the you know the network operations center and and into actual honest to goodness applications running on people's desktops. 
applications like that that are IP version dependent should be rolled up and thrown out anyway because it's hacked code. It's not actually properly written software. <laughs> yes, we agree. Let's but they're real. And they're just like the XP box, they're going to be sitting there in on people's desktops for forever. They're going to be running on those XP boxes. Oh, yes. I like this. This this has turned into a utopia show. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like, really, I mean, like, this is uh, <laughs> like a series. Like, like, I mean, like, I, I don't disagree with you, but the same thing about, you know, layer two DCI uh, between data centers. Like, we yeah, shouldn't do that, doing because, that because of X. Well, it's really easy to say that. It's really hard to execute on that. And, and, and companies just aren't interested. They're going to keep asking for stupid so, things. So how about this, Jordan, too? There's, there's a whole space within the enterprise. Um, so you're familiar with it. You work for, a, I believe you work for a reseller, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, and so let's talk about this space. You deploy what you know. And I would argue the mass majority of, of enterprise, you know, shops use a reseller to help them deploy sets of technology. And if the resellers don't know V6, and they don't have capabilities to deploy V6, what is the likelihood that any enterprise is gonna adopt it within their technology stack if their principal partner that they go into to deploy a set of technologies doesn't know it? And I would say the probability is very low. So, you know, shame on us from an industry standpoint of not getting out there and helping the channel, the partner, the resellers. The manufacturers have done a great deal of this work. I mean, Windows, Linux, most of the major networking operating systems, all support v6 through and through and all do the right behavior through and through that's not the issue the issue is the people that actually need to build run and maintain these networks or to help companies do that have no skill set in the v6 arena to actually get their hands dirty to actually deploy these sets of technologies so just like if it's me if i don't know how to drive a stick shift car i'm never going to buy a stick shift car and i'm never going to rent one uh, You're even, if, if, even if 50 percent, well i happen to know how to do one i'm old enough to do stick shift <laughs> but and we have a stick shift card now. But my point being is, if you don't know it, and it's not your day-to-day, -day, and your day-to-day -day is, I know V4, I know how to deploy V4, and I know how to do that. Uh, do, do I think that that's a structural problem? Yes, it's a structural problem because it impedes adoption of V6. It's really interesting because there seems to be this weird thing in the industry today. And I, and I get where it's coming from, but, it's, but at the same time, I'm just going to make the observation. V6 is just a course protocol. You know, I got, you know, to the 128 problem and you know the protocol ain't one i mean it, the protocol itself it doesn't not, flow quite the same <laughs> but the protocol itself isn't the structure the use cases for it isn't any different than before if you were to sit down and just give a problem and say i need a protocol v4 v6 um freaking you know I, I it it just it it's not really relevant to the discussion it's what you know how to deploy that's relevant to the discussion so if the team sitting across the table from you says, this is what I know how to deploy, I can get it done XYZ and I know the price. That ends the discussion about what technology set gets selected. And, um, and you know what? And you know I, what? I, I don't know that I fully agree. So much for utopia. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> really fully agree. And, and, and we're, we're going to have to wrap here in a second, but I just, let me um, let me defend this point for a second because that's not necessarily true because there's the best best of breed and, and then there's, you know, what the customer can ultimately end up supporting. And so sure. many of the conversations I have are, this is the way you should do it. And they go, I don't have the people who can do that. That makes me nervous. I don't want to do that. Can we do it this way? And as, as a partner, you're never going to come in and say, well, no, you can't ever do it that way. You're going to advise and then you're going to do what the customer ultimately asks you to do. So um, I just want, 
I just okay. want to make sure that we wrapped the show up to say that it was all Jordan's fault. That I, that's what I was going to point out. Has <laughs> not. Somehow I ended up responsible for the lack of IBBs. I'm not sure how this happened. Don't forget how security, man. Security in every place in the world looks at V6 and goes, what? Yes. Really? And then they just go on with their lives. That's so, so it is. It is. It is incredibly clear, and I knew this before we started that we need more than one of these shows every what year and a half. So, <laughs> well, what percentage of all the shows would this one show be? See, um, oh man, I don't even. I, Russ, I don't even know so at this point. Think about it, right? If we're at eight percent of our shows, then we're about like lower than what we should be for. No, the I think. I think we're, we're not even. Anywhere near eight <laughs> percent. We're we're down near. I, I'm pretty Great. sure we're down near one percent of our shoes of our shoes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, uh, it's been it's been a great conversation. We do have to end because we're starting to run a bit long. Um, I we're definitely gonna have to do this again because there's just so much to talk about uh, when it relates to V6. Unfortunately, uh, one of our guests and and uh, George Michaelson had to leave. He had a hard stop and and he doesn't get to say where he's from. So we're not gonna tell you. That's not true. I'll find. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure to post uh, links. George, where you, can... George, you can find him at uh, APNIC. Um, APNIC. If their blog, he sometimes writes there, and then Jeff Houston's writing is sometimes based on George's work. George works for APNIC. Oh, there you go. So if you, if you want to go find him, that's a place. I imagine he's on LinkedIn. That's yeah, always a safe That's always a safe bed in everything space if you're there. Um, but I want to give everyone else an opportunity to share where they can find uh, or where you can find them. So Leslie, where can people find you? <laughs> um, well, any one of a number of places, but uh, most of all, you can find me at thinkingcat.com. Thinkingcat.com. Mm-hmm. That's a story for another day. I want to know where that came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Ed, how about you? All right, just at eHorley on Twitter is super simple. That's it's it. the best place to find you, eHorley on blog, Twitter. Right, you don't have a blog, do you, Ed? Uh, oh, I have howfunky.com, but, you know. Okay. How many people? Howfunky.com. Funky is your <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go get uh-huh. howfunky thinking cat. Howfunky yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thinking cat. All right, <laughs> Russ, Russ, where are some places that people can find you? Always find me at rule11.tech. You can always find me at Network Collective, at Routing Geek on the Twitters and LinkedIn, and I don't know, wherever else. Russ is everywhere. Go buy a book. Yeah, I don't know. Go do something and you'll find Russ. He's everywhere. Uh, everywhere. everywhere, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a problem. We're working on it. But uh, (laughs) so I'm Jordan Martin at BC Jordo on Twitter, jordanmartin.net. If you like this episode, there's a lot more like it uh, at thenetworkcollective.com. And that would be a good place to go. Check out what we're doing there. There's lots of stuff there. We have uh, our community roundtable series, which is this. We have history of networking, which is a lot of fun, where we talk about or talk to people who were involved with the, the foundation of networking and the internet. There's some really cool episodes there. Um, and we have all of our member exclusive content as well, which is uh, you should take a look at as well. So uh, I think that's it for today. Uh, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.